in the Old Testament, there's two, we have grouped the prophetic writings and, into two big groups, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Um, they weren't originally lumped together in those two different buckets. Uh, we've done that later on. And the only differentiation, you know what makes you a major prophet versus a minor prophet? It's only the length of the letter. That's it. It's not like, you know, when we think major, major leagues and minor leagues, we think one group is superior to another. And I think maybe, unfortunately, in choosing this majoring in the minors, I might have reinforced that. What's unfortunate is that we, for the most part, especially Western Christians, we're very ignorant of what's in those 12 minor prophets because maybe we just think that they're too tough to read or they are less in importance. Every single one of these prophetic letters, everything that these 12 prophets had to say is every bit as authoritative and valuable and important uh, and necessary for us as any other writing in all of the Bible. And so I think it's important for us to understand, yes, they're called minor prophets only because they're shorter than the major prophets. Books like um, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're very lengthy. Um, Amos that we're studying today is one of the longer of the minor prophets, but some of the minor prophets are just a couple pages or, or really just a few paragraphs. So I want to make sure that I clear that up. We're going to be studying Amos today. So if you have your Bible, turn it on and find Amos. It's in the Old Testament, Hosea, Joel, Amos. It's the third of the 12 uh, minor prophets that we'll be studying today. Some of you are wondering about the icons that, we, that uh, Havila used in our imagery. Each one of those little icons uh, stands for kind of a theme of the book. And you see the one, my eyes, I can't see because of the light. They're, they're, they're dark here. But I think there's a sheep for Amos. Or I'm, I can't see it. Okay. Do you know why? Why, is, why does a sheep represent Amos? Anybody know? Very good. Amos um, Amos self-identifies as a shepherd, so a very poor one at that, so that will play into what we're doing later on. Lots that could be said about Amos, but since I have the gift of taking things that could be said in a minute and taking them, saying them in 45, we're going to go back to our friends at the Bible Project again this week and show you a short clip of an introduction video that they made. It's really fun to watch. That'll give you uh, an overview of Amos and what this book is all about. So uh, if you want to roll that video, uh, check out Amos. The Book of the Prophet Amos Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier, remember 1 Kings chapter 12, and it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos could couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom. And it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. 
So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility. And so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now, this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos is called to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Now these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. So righteousness, or in Hebrew tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. So it gives you a bit of a background on what the whole book is about. This was written, um, it's dated about 750 BC, so right halfway between, uh, right in the middle of the 8th century BC. And it makes me, you know, wonder what was going on in the world as a whole in the 8th century BC. You know, we, we focus a lot in church on what was happening in uh, Israel, and in this time Israel and Judah. But there were two other major metropolitan world cities at that time that were coming into prominence you may have heard of, Rome and Carthage, Carthage in Greece. So Rome, at this time, they're actually beginning to really get going. They're forming their, you know, they're getting ready to form their empire. They're building roads. They're getting ready to spread, uh, to spread their reign all over, well, they thought all over the world, but really all over Europe and trying to go into the Middle East. In Greece, this was the time that the Olympic Games begin, and uh, people are becoming fascinated with the idea of competitive sports, and so in Greece, there was a lot going on too in their architecture. Homer was writing Iliad at this time. The Greeks are planning city-states, and they introduced this idea of government called democracy. So keep in mind, that came from the Greeks 
that did not come from the Bible. This was the Greek way of introducing a governmental system in the world. And also in this same century, the civilizations in China and in India are also beginning to raise to prominence. So there's really, a, it's a fascinating time of history. So this is what's going on in the world at the very same time that Amos is writing and speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. So then the question becomes, what was going on in God's world? What was God doing in the 8th century B.C.? And the answer to that is that God had problems. God had big problems. And God had big problems with his people. You see, God's plan was to win back the world through loving his people, but he couldn't even get his own people in line. He couldn't even get his own people right. So God was having major problems with all of this. And you, and you say, well, how... How did this happen? Well, it goes back a little bit before Amos starts. Um, God's people were begging him for a king, which is weird because they already had a king. They had an invisible king, and that king is God. They had a king, but they, the people were saying, oh, God, we, just, we want a visible king. And God warned them through Samuel that kings are expensive. He warned them through Samuel. He said, listen. If you have a king, here's what you don't realize. Kings will tax you. Heavy taxation. Centralized government is expensive. Kings will take your sons and put them in his army. Kings will take your daughters and put them in the palace harem. Kings will take and take and take. And, they and God through Samuel warned the people, but nonetheless the people persisted. They wanted a king, so they got a king. And the first king they got was a man by the name of Saul. Any of you heard of King Saul? Okay, popular choice, tall, dark, and handsome, good-looking guy, um, but because he came from the tribe of Benjamin, he also came with some very specific character weaknesses that were exposed, and so after Saul, God raised up King David, a man after God's own heart, but in one afternoon, King David broke half of the Ten Commandments, didn't he, and he never fully recovered from that and brought great uh, shame and difficulty on his family. And so after King David, God raised up King Solomon, David's son. And now King Solomon brought, uh, in many ways, brought a lot of glory where David had brought a lot of shame onto the kingdom. Solomon builds a magnificent, opulent temple, right? He finishes the work his dad Start. His dad drew up the architectural plans, but he handed them off to Solomon. King David even raised the money. And Solomon finishes this project, which is a huge win for the nation of Israel. But there's a problem with this. The way that he was able to build this big, expensive public building was through even heavier taxation, and he forced people into labor. Now, you realize, don't you, that raising taxes and forcing people into labor is not popular, right? Sound familiar in any ways? to us. And so Solomon, on the one hand, brought a lot of glory to the nation, but then all of the wealth that was associated this with actually trickled into the southern part of the kingdom of Israel so that the wealth was not proportionately distributed throughout the nation. Sound familiar? So it caused a lot of tension. So as soon as Solomon dies, a civil war breaks out in Israel. They'd had enough of this. And 10 of the 12 tribes break away and form a northern kingdom. And two of the tribes remain loyal to Jerusalem. 
remain loyal to the divine bloodline of kings and to their, to their temple in the south. So at the time of Amos's writing, God does not have one people. He has two. He has the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, who are kingless when they form, and they are uh, templeless when they form. They abandon God's divine royal bloodline, and they abandon the temple. And then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Amos lives. Amos lives in Judah and the southern kingdom, who are still following God's bloodline. Ironically enough, the good kings in the southern bloodline during this time, not the bad kings, because there's a few of those, but in Judah, the good kings of Judah averaged 33 years of a reign. The northern kingdom, like we said, they had no king, they had no temple, so they devised their own. They built two temples, one in Samaria and one in Bethel. Now, if you think to the New Testament, do you remember um, Jesus meets a woman at the well? She asks him for a drink, and she, she's thinking, she says, is it right for us to worship here in Bethel or in Jerusalem? You know, this goes, the, the origins of that question go the whole way back to this period of history. Okay, when Israel's a divided nation. So the northerners, they come up with their own kings who average three years of a reign. There was a lot of coups, assassinations, takeovers. So you see the good kings who honored the Lord in the south reigned for about 33 years, and the bad evil kings reigned for about three years. It's very interesting what's going on. But there's a lot of tension uh, between these two areas. God has a problem. The problem is that the northern kingdom rapidly turns away from him. Now, the southern kingdom, we, the best way to say is they were less bad than the northern kingdom. They weren't in as dire of a spiritual state as the north. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. But there was a pretty strong remnant there in Judah where Amos was. So God has this huge, massive problem. It started with the people rejecting his leadership, wanting kings. And then humanity and selfishness and all these other issues took over. And at the time of Amos, God has two kingdoms. He has two people. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. So um, in northern Israel, what was going on there was uh, they were, this was during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And what you need to know is this is a season of relative peace and prosperity. In other words, for the first time in who knows how long they weren't worried about being invaded and conquered by another nation. And some crazy things happen to a generation of people when they are raised not having to worry about outside threats or not knowing any war. Now, if you know anything about history, the Assyrians were uh, pretty savage. And there was a long time where they were threatening to take over Israel. But God raised up another prophet to go witness to the Assyrians, a man by the name of Jonah. And he actually went, eventually, we'll talk about him in a couple weeks, right? He actually went, witnessed to the Assyrians. They repented. And as a result of Jonah's success and, their, and the Assyrians' repentance, the northern kingdom of Israel didn't have to worry about defense for a while. And so instead, during the reign of King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, they entered into a season of, in a word, affluence. You see, there's two major trade routes that cross as an X right in northern Israel. And so since they didn't have to worry about defending themselves, they learned to become really wealthy, powerful merchants. And so a powerful merchant class arises in northern Israel during this time. They learn the import-export business. The gross national product 
goes through the roof. The standard of living goes through the roof. Real estate now becomes a booming business. People become preoccupied with material things. Status symbols, luxuries begin to appear everywhere. And one of the main status symbols of the time was the ability to afford a second home. They called it a summer home. And so the powerful merchant class in northern Israel during this time were so wealthy that they were actually competing to buy second homes up in the hills that they could go to during the summer, having furniture custom made out of ivory. In fact, you read some of these details in Amos. You see uh, some of the status symbols of this time. But also at this same time, because of their peacefulness, their prosperity, and the, the, their, their wealth, they began to drift away from God. One of the first things that happened was that they stopped being faithful to keep one day of their week sacred to worship. And they started working seven days a week because they could make more money if they stayed open doing imports and exports on the seventh day. And so they stopped prioritizing taking a day of the week. Their cry was, this was the only day we have to ourselves." And so let's keep the businesses open so that we can earn more. And if we earn more, we can do more and spend more and have more. And so worship became a casualty of that. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It's one of the saddening refrains I hear even here locally when we're trying to figure out why is it that people, not only at our church, but around our country are attending church less and less frequently. And as we've surveyed you, And as we've asked, one of the things that keeps coming up to us is it's the one day we have to ourself. And do you know how bad that sounds? Israel was in trouble, deep trouble. And it began, one of the ways it began was in a time when they didn't have to worry about being invaded by another country. They had lots of opportunities to earn. And with their earning, it opened up lots of things that they could buy. And those things that they bought began to run their life so much so that the Sabbath was no longer a day for God, it was a day for self. And they resented even the expectation that they would even come together corporately for worship. And they began to do their own thing. And over time, it, 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 it wove into all other parts of their society at this time. At the time that Amos is called to leave his, his, uh, humble, uh, his humble area there in, in Judah and go and, and speak to the northerners, there is wealth and opulence almost everywhere. But what was happening was, unfortunately, the rich were becoming richer, but the poor were becoming poorer. You see corruption, when there was wealth corruption, and money could buy you almost anything. The legal system, even the judges, the people who would rule the courts, became susceptible to bribes. It was a time where the only way you could get justice was by slipping a bribe to the judge. And that was unfair to the poor who went to court, because guess what? Poor people can't afford to pay anybody off. And Amos draws this out. He says, your whole legal system is corrupt. You've become a system that's not based on justice, but upon finances and bribes, and that favors the wealthy because they have the opportunity to to pay off the judges. The poor get no justice because they can't afford afford to pay to be judged fairly. Taxation is going through the roof. Banks were flourishing at this time. They would lend money to people everywhere. And so if you were poor and you needed money, guess where you went? You went to a loan shark. 
And they would give you money against whatever collateral that you could give them, knowing that you didn't have the ability to repay. And then they'd leverage not only your collateral. Amos writes they were even using some of the silver items that they would take in collateral from the poor to drink wine out of while they were having sex with prostitutes and worship to the new pagan gods in the temples they built in Bethel. And knowing full well these poor people can't make good on these loans, they took advantage of people by loaning them money they couldn't repay. And when they couldn't repay it, they leveraged those opportunities to take advantage and sell those people into debt slavery for even more profit. Sound familiar? These books are relevant. They're relevant. This is God's people who he's supposed to be winning the world. These are supposed to be God's holy, righteous people and they had become a society run by affluence materialism corruption bribery injustice treating people differently who had less and didn't have the same opportunities than others the people who had different opportunities and wealth did not see that wealth as a gift from god to be able to use to correct injustice as the old testament called for The Old Testament had all kinds of laws in place to ensure that things like this would never happen. But you see, when you start to customize God's word, you're headed for trouble. You're headed for trouble. There's a reason why the Bible teaches about giving the way that it does. There's a reason why the Bible... And what you have now is there's a group of people in the northern kingdom who no longer love one another, who no longer treat each other with justice, who no longer live righteously. And you ask, well, what was going on with religion? Well, religion was booming in northern Israel, but it was not the religion that their forefathers taught them about. It was all kinds of new ageism that they adopted from all over the world as people were drifting in. They stopped just worshiping God. They started adopting pagan gods, and they started worshiping the wife of one of the pagan gods. And anytime you feminize deity, if you look through history, you sexualize worship. And so in these two temples that they built, Samaria and Bethel, if you were to worship at the time of Amos, what you would do when you, when you go up there is there would be plenty of prostitutes available, both male and female prostitutes, and they believed that you could solicit a prostitute, and as you had sexual intercourse with the prostitute, that would count for your act of worship. So that's what Bethel and Samaria became. So you understand when Amos issues a rebuke from God where God says, I detest your acts of worship. He even says, you're tithing three times a week, and I hate it. Because you think that somehow doing that compensates for all these other things, and it doesn't. Because God says, I'm not separating your worship from the way you're living, from the way you're treating people, from the way you handle your money, from the way that you, you know, the sexual freedom and sexual laxity that you have. In fact, Amos even says one of the things that was going on is fathers and sons were sharing the same sexual partner. We don't need to explain that. It's as bad as it sounds. This is what was going on in God's people. God had a big problem with his people. Israel, northern Israel was in deep trouble and it required two more prophets. It required a prophet by the name of Hosea and a prophet by the name of Amos. God raised up two more prophets. Do you see how merciful God is? It says in Amos 3 that God never, it says, I'm not sending judgment until I reveal what I'm going to do to my prophets so that they can come to you and give you one last chance to affect the outcome. In other words, the whole message of Amos is, this is what's coming unless you straighten up. You can still avoid this. 
But God sends Amos and Hosea, and they could not be two more different people in terms of temperament and in terms of theme. Hosea is very tender. Amos is very tough. Hosea speaks and emphasizes the mercy of God. Amos emphasizes the judgment and the severity of God. They're very, 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 very different approaches, very different contrast. But this is what's going on. This is the problems that God has. And so he raises up Hosea, and he raises up Amos, and we studied, um, we studied uh, Hosea already. But I guess the question is, what was then the core of Amos' message? You heard some of it alluded to. He leaves Judah. He goes, listen, he goes all by himself as an uneducated country bumpkin who goes into a booming metropolis, as it were, and stands by himself on the steps of the Capitol, not on the steps of the Capitol building, on the steps of Wall Street, not Wall Street, but, you know, the steps of Bethel. Like someone from the backwoods of Mississippi with an eighth-grade education, a self-made person, very humble, going to Manhattan, to Wall Street with a megaphone and talking to people about materialism. How do you think that would go over? That's Amos. And he stirs up a lot of resistance, as you might imagine. So what was really, if we boil down Amos's message that God gave Amos, he was sick and tired of what he heard going on. Amos was true to God. And God said, I need you to go speak to the northerners, to my people, and give them another chance and tell them what's coming. Here's the nucleus of it. It's in your notes. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. This is at the core of God's message that Amos delivered to northern Israel. I hate, that's strong words, isn't it, from God? I hate, right? I hate all your show and your pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, here's the prescription, and this should sound familiar to you. Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech quotes from here. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. God's saying religious, hypocritical religious exercises you're going through, I hate them. What I want to see instead is actual righteousness and justice flowing through my people again, and I don't see it anywhere. That's the core of his message. Um, so you might be wondering, well, how did they respond? How did the northerners respond to this guy showing up on the steps of the temple in Bethel? How did they respond to his message? Did they listen? Did they repent? Did they take any action? We get this really stunning inside view. It's kind of like the Amos is a tough book to interpret and organize because it's really just a collection of poems and really a dirge. It's really dark. It's really heavy. There's mercy mentioned for five verses at the end of the book, and it's only for Judah. It's really heavy. But there's this little break in the action in Amos chapter 7 where we see that the priest of the temple of Bethel had finally just had enough, and he's been listening to what Amos has been saying. Amos actually goes as far as to predict the demise of King Jeroboam and that foreigners are going to come in. He says, he says things are, here's how bad things have been. 
And he goes through all these different things, and yet you wouldn't listen. I sent a food shortage, and you wouldn't listen. I sent a water shortage, and you wouldn't listen. I sent mildew on your crops, and you wouldn't listen. I sent disease on your animals, and you wouldn't listen. And he, and he alludes to two more things that are going to come. The first verse of Amos tells us one of them. It says, two years before the massive earthquake, the word of the Lord came to Amos. There was two years after this, there was a massive earthquake that even 250 years later, Zechariah was still referencing. It rocked the whole kingdom, and they still didn't repent. And the last thing he said is exile. If you won't turn to God, then he will remove you from your land. And the priest is listening in one day at the, at the, the temple of Baal, and he's just, he's, he goes to the king, and he says, King, this joker's out here predicting your death. And so here's how they actually responded to um, Amos. It's in your notes. Amos chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. Then Amaziah, he was the priest of the temple at Bethel, sent orders to Amos. Get out of here, you prophet. Go on back to the land of Judah and earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. But Amos replied, I love this. I'm not a professional prophet, and I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd, and I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock, and he told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. So let me ask the question, who was he? How did he become a prophet? We pretty much covered this. Who was Amos? How did he become a prophet? Um, he lived among a group of shepherds in a little town called Tekoa, which was 10 miles south of Jerusalem, 10 to 12 miles south. We know he was poor because he says, I look after sycamore fig trees. Sycamore fig trees produced a tiny little fruit that was commonly called the poor man's fig. He was literally the poorest of the poor. He was uneducated. He was not ordained. He was not a professional prophet. He had no family members in the ministry. He was pretty much, by all accounts, we would say a nobody. And he never calls himself anything other than that. But isn't it beautiful that God chooses what we would call a nobody to go do something so significant for the kingdom of God? God did not choose Amos because he thought he was somebody. He chose him because he was not. God chose Israel, his people, not because they were the smartest or the most powerful or the most wealthy or the most clever. He chose them because he loved them. Do you hear this? God picks us, not because we are, but because we're not. He chooses us because he loves us. He loves, you know why he loves and he delights in choosing the people that the world would call nobodies? Because if God chooses them, he gets all the glory. If God goes to the people who think we're the smartest, we're the most educated, we've got our act all together, if we do it, we're gonna take all the glory. God loved to use people like Amos and he was pretty much a relative nobody, but God used him and that's how he became a prophet. So uh, he was fed up with the injustice he was fed up with the moral decay. He was fed up with the hypocrisy of the Israelites. So he leaves his house. He treks up to the northern kingdom all by himself, a man of such great courage, willing to literally go out on a limb all by himself, risk his whole life to speak a very unpopular word to people who rejected him because he was a foreigner. They treated him like a foreigner. Even though if you go back to Leviticus, in Leviticus, God says you should have no laws that treat foreigners any different from nationals. But yet by this time, they resist him and they write him off because he's just some poor, dumb southerner who doesn't belong 
and this really nice northern kingdom. This is their kingdom. This is their temple. Amos was a man of tremendous, tremendous courage. So what made him so angry? How did he handle his anger? He was fed up, like I said, and so he directs his words. He talks to the privileged people of northern Israel, and he tries to point out how privileged they really are, how merciful God has truly been to them. And he says, who you are now, are you a people, you have no love for your neighbor. You have no awareness of the plight of the poor. You have no decency, no willingness to, to, you treat people differently based upon what they have and what they don't, where they come from, based on their race, based on their country of origin, based on their ability or lack thereof, based on their wealth. You treat people inequitably. You take advantage of others. You look out for your own concerns. More than any other book of the Bible, Amos holds people accountable for how they treat other people. And he details four sinful activities that we saw in the video. I'll just hit them quickly. We talked about them. They're selling off needy people into debt slavery, which we talked about. They know people are poor and they need money and they can't get it because they're withholding on the wealth. So they leverage that. And they get whatever possessions they can from the poor. If you read through Amos, he talks about different ways that they, the second way is they, they take advantage of the helpless and they oppress the poor. So, you know, they're, they're selling off needy people into debt slavery because they're, they're giving them loans that they know they can't repay and leveraging it to take these people for all that they can. They're oppressing the poor. In other words, they're not just being neutral towards poor people. They're, they're increasing that. Do you have people who have two and three houses at a time when other people have zero houses? And that's a problem among the poor. It's a problem because those who had wealth saw it as their money and their possessions and had no problem building their houses on the backs of the poor. It also says that they were taxing the poor unfairly. At one point in Amos, he says, you are stealing the grain out of the mouths of the poor people by increasing their taxes. And when they do come to buy grain, you use a separate set of scales so that you give them less grain than what they're actually paying for. They leverage the ability to, to set prices to be able to gouge the poor people. Sound at all familiar? What Amos says is when you're living like this, it's an indication you've left God. You obviously do not go God. If you cannot relate to your poor brother and sister like this, you cannot relate to God is what God's saying through Amos. If you have no love for them, if you cannot act equitably towards them, then you cannot have relationship with me. That's a hard message. But I want you to know that you can't write this off because this is the Old Testament. The Bible beats a heart of a God who cares about the poor and the helpless and the voiceless. He hates, hates injustice and will not stand for hypocrisy of his people. And I know you're thinking, well, pastor, well, then we just need to come up with a plan. We've never lacked a plan. No one wants to do the plan. That's the problem. You have the ability to help people. You just choose not to, or you choose to, right? We don't need some big plan sometimes to do this. We just need to do it, but we don't want to. We want somebody else to do this. We don't want to be inconvenienced. This was a problem. Amos is fed up. That's what he was angry about. He says, you're oppressing the poor. He says, there's poverty. God is showing them there is poverty in your nation and there's so much wealth here and ability here. There shouldn't be this kind of poverty. And it brings up uncomfortable parallels to today. And I don't claim to be um, a great political mind. I know that I'm not. But it doesn't take long, you know, if you really listen to hear that there is lots of frustration 
in the U.S. today over the inequitable distribution of opportunity or access to education or access to wealth. And when you boil it down, you can kind of put it in two camps if you listen. You have the conservative camp who says, well, this is the result of a decaying family structure. You know, it's because of failures at the family level that our children are raising up with different levels of opportunity and access to education or viable jobs or a way forward. It's because the family is falling apart. We need to fix families. And then you have the liberal camp who says it's the result of disproportionate distribution of wealth and that we need uh, govern more governmentally driven programs that make sure that wealth and opportunity is getting to people who otherwise wouldn't get there. And so, you know, one group blames the other. They blame this. Here's the reality, though. Nobody's blaming the children for this. Nobody says, you know what, it's the 14-year-old's fault because they don't understand. They need to move out of, you know, this, uh, they need to move out of the situation they are in South Baltimore and get to a place where they can go to a charter school. No 14-year-old wakes up and says, you know what, I need to relocate myself to have better educational opportunities. You have no 7-year-old who says, you know what, I need to find an adult who will just read to me every day. You recognize that there are people who are being penalized in all of this and it's not their fault. But everybody else is pointing fingers about, you know, we need to come up with a plan that we can all agree with and we can't agree on. We can't even agree on the definition of injustice and we wonder why. And this is where they were in the 8th century B.C. That's why Amos was angry. That's why some of you are so angry. That's why some of you are so angry. And God doesn't roll out some long legal plan. In fact, he had already given them a plan. It's called love one another. And don't be selfish. And share with other people. And everything that you have belongs to me. And I'm going to give some more. And they have responsibility to share some of what they have with others. We're not talking about advocacy. That's speaking up but not necessarily doing anything. Advocacy is fine. But that's not the same as charity. Charity is doing something for people who need somebody to do something for them that other people don't need people to do for them. And that was built in to the law that God gave them when he was their king. And they had abandoned from it, and this is the society that they had. So that's what he was mad about. That's what he was trying to take action. He says, because Israel had lost the concept of caring for one another, Amos concludes they had obviously forgotten God. It's worth noting that while other prophets devote a lot of time describing redemption and restoration, Amos only devotes five verses out of nine chapters to those ideas. And they're directed towards Judah, not even northern Israel. So what corrective response, we read it already, what corrective response does Amos prescribe? What does he say that the northern Israelites are supposed to do with the message that he's bringing to them from God? Well, you saw saw it represented very clearly in the Bible project, and I'll bring it out to you again. Two things. He relays a corrective prescription. He says, I want to see a river of justice and righteous living. Let me define those for you by the Hebrew words that were originally used, not by our definition today, Because around this room, I don't know that we could agree on what justice means. We might have a lot of definitions, but we might not all agree. Here's what the word biblically in this context means. Justice simply meant concrete actions which correct injustice. Concrete action. God says to his people, if you want to come back to me and avoid, avoid earthquakes and avoid exile... Here's what I want to see flowing out of your life. Not in isolated incidents, but as a river. I want my people to be taking concrete actions that are correcting the injustice of what kind of injustice? The poor being oppressed. Women being treated immorally. 
wealth and status symbols consuming you and polluting your ability to worship me. The advantage that you're taking of the disadvantaged. The being numb and indifferent to the helpless. He's like, I'll send you into exile if you don't correct that. And I ask you again, how concerned is God with the physical needs of his people? Very concerned. So much more concerned, I think, than we can even get our minds wrapped around sometimes. He says, I want to see a river of justice. I want to see my people taking concrete actions which overcome and correct injustices, which they had caused themselves. And then he says, I want to see righteousness. And that word, it's interesting. We think about purity or clean. The word actually means to live in right relationship with people defined by treating people equitably regardless of racial, social uh, differences. In other words, he says, I want to see you treating people equitably regardless of their wealth, regardless of where they were born or where they were raised. I want to see you treating people, love one another. Treat people equitably. And that was a hard message, such a hard message that they didn't want to hear it and they just send him home. You know, they, uh, we don't really know exactly what happened to Amos. There's a couple different theories I won't waste your time with today, but you know, we don't know a whole lot about his story. I don't even know if he made it home. But that was his message. So what exactly is justice? I'll just offer you just a couple simple talking points. What is it? Concrete actions which 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 correct injustice? Well, let me be more specific. It means equal treatment regardless of someone's racial or social identity. It means a special concern for vulnerable people and vulnerable populations. And I realize speaking, you know, I speak up, I'm a voice for the voiceless, and that's good. I don't want to in any way come across as though speaking up, speaking out, using your platforms to speak up for causes that people don't know about. That's a good thing and a healthy thing. And I encourage you to use your platform and your voice for things that God puts on your heart, absolutely. But I don't want us to mistake advocacy for charity. Advocacy is when we speak up. But charity is when we actually do something for somebody that maybe you don't need someone to do for you because you don't have that need. But somebody over here, they need somebody to do this for them. They need somebody that's not them to step in and do, give, be something for them on their behalf because they can't do it for themselves. And it's very, part of what God specifies in the Bible as justice is when we have special awareness and concern for vulnerable populations that just need somebody to do something for them that maybe not everybody else does because those people don't have that same need. That's what justice looks like. Justice looks like generosity. Justice doesn't look like the kind of generosity that makes us feel good about ourselves and we're doing it to feel better. Justice is not motivated by this sense of I better do it or else. Just the, just, that type of generosity is really motivated by the beauty of just doing it because you want to. Justice looks like people who truly in their heart of hearts want to be generous and charitable to individuals and populations who just simply needs someone to come alongside of them and do for them something they cannot do for themselves. That's what justice looks like. Now that everybody's irritated and defended, let me close. (laughs) How do I apply this to my life today? Can I encourage you to go back now and read Amos? Read it. It's nine chapters long, but they're not long chapters. But maybe 
now, even if you already read it this week, maybe now like this afternoon or tomorrow, reading through it again, take you maybe 20, 30 minutes. Maybe reading through it again now that you have the whole tapestry of what was going on. I did this last night again, like at the end of the week, last thing I read before I went to bed, I read all of Amos again. And man, like once I had done all the homework and the legwork and the heart, God's really working on me on the heart work. This hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh my goodness, like I'm not, I mean, like this is in many ways me, even more so this is in many ways us, just where we are in history. This is where we are. And I don't want to be the person who makes the mistake of saying this is too uncomfortable for me to hear, so let me just move on to something that sounds better. I don't know exactly what all Phil and Kendra and Isaiah and Chase are going to do with what's in Amos, but it's definitely got us thinking and asking, God, help me. I don't want to be this type of a person that's just indifferent to real needs around me. And I don't want to be so terrified of how people would perceive whatever that we give or do. You know, it's like some type of, I don't want to get confused with politics. I just want to be the person God's called me to be. I want to be someone who is part of this river of justice and righteousness flowing into the neighborhoods and communities where I live. But I need his help to see through some of these things, just see it, see it more clearly. And hear it less defensively and less judgmentally. I want to be able to hear and then put into effect whatever it is. I want to take some concrete action. And sometimes I just don't know exactly what to do with that. But I'm telling you, if your heart says, I want to, God will always bring you a plan. Right? The place where most of us are stuck is we can't even get to that. I, I know it's like I can teach on giving all day long. But if your heart doesn't want to give, it doesn't matter what the plan is. But once your heart says, I really want to give to God, how should I be doing that? Man, God will, God will help you. You have to get to the want to. The plan means nothing unless you want to do it. So I'm hoping that maybe this gets to the want to. We can see the decay that this led to in their society. We don't have to look too far to find some real day things here. And we don't, let's not be those people just pointing around fingers. Can we at least try and be the church first and politicians second on this one? God, what is it? You know, help me get past my defensiveness. Help me see, help me hear. Help me understand. And then show me what actions I can take or me and my family can take, what concrete things. There's probably at least somebody in your life right now who on some level would benefit and be ministered to by something you can do for them they can't really do for themselves. I'm just leaving that very broad. So how do I apply this to my life? I just wrote three things down because I'm a pastor, I think, in threes. God is deeply concerned with both the physical needs and the spiritual needs of his people. Do you get that from this? He's not only concerned about physical needs, that's the social gospel, right? Where we just go around meeting all kinds of, you know, we, we, we do all kinds of charity work but we don't ever connect that to a motivation out of the gospel. It's, it's motivated by wanting to feel good about ourselves. It's motivated by wanting to, to do good things and the good things that come around. But God is not only concerned about spiritual things. He's also concerned about physical things. Secondly, God does not separate our worship from how we treat people. God has the audacity to say through Amos, that if we cannot relate to the poor and the vulnerable, then we cannot relate to him either. Because God has always gone out of his way to show how he identifies with the lowest on the ladder. And in that way, Amos points to Jesus. Because Jesus came in and embodied so many of the life characteristics of the oppressed and the poor that we read about in the kingdom of northern Israel. I mean, he did not come into the world taking the role at the top of the ladder as a king on an ivory bed with with silver chalices sitting around that they had as collateral from the people that they took bad loans from to fill himself. You know, alcohol consumption was at an all-time high in northern Israel during this time. And, you know, it, there's all this opulence going on. Jesus did not come in in that status. He came in. He came into a poor, humble family 
in a commoner's in a commoner's shack in a feeding trough and when he dies he's got one possession left his garment when he goes to the cross he has one earthly possession no 401k no real estate portfolio no closet of clothes no sandals he has one piece of clothing left and you know what they do they take even that from him so that he dies absolutely penniless, absolutely homeless, absolutely propertyless. He went out in the very same condition that these people were being oppressed and suffering in northern Israel. Jesus identifies with them. He comes to us as him. He's even buried in a borrowed tomb. And yet Jesus says, when you've done this to the least of these, you've done these to me. And he says, and people say, when have we ever done that for you? He's like, when you saw somebody hungry and you fed them, when you saw somebody thirsty and you gave them a drink, when you saw somebody who needed something material and you had the ability to meet that need in that moment, when you've done it to the least of them, you've done it to me. And what Amos is saying is you've forgotten about the least of them. And if you forget about the least of them, you've forgotten about him. And he says, you can't worship. God can't be in close relationship with people who are rejecting others and are treating people so terribly. He says, I can't separate your acts of worship on Sunday from the way you treat people on Monday. And then number three, the life of a Christian should resemble a river of justice and righteousness, not injustice and hypocrisy. What is the river that flows out of your life if I asked your friends? your family member. What's the river that flows out of your life? You know, it's interesting. A lot of our relationship with God is built on what we think about Him. What do I think about God today? But Amos comes and he says, here's what God thinks about you today. I think that's a healthy question for us to be asking every now and again, right? Because my future doesn't only depend on what I think about God. It really, at the core, depends about what he thinks about me. Both are important. What does God think about us today? What does God think about you today? If Amos were here today, and he's not, but if Amos were here today talking to us about these very same topics, how would he address us, and how would he address you? Let's think about that as we close with prayer. Worship team, you can come back and join me. Let me pray for you. Friend, if you feel as though life has just dealt you a bunch of unwanted circumstances, and then you feel in many ways forgotten about and looked down upon and empty, pointless, directionless, whether you have a lot, a little, or in between, I want you to know that Jesus can identify with you. And Jesus can understand, and Jesus does understand the circumstances you find yourself in. And I want you to know that it's not wealth or poverty that delivers you, because some people think if you just have it all, then life will be good, and others think that you should give it all away, and life will be good. Only Jesus can satisfy those things. Only Jesus is the one who, if you have him, whether you have a lot or a little, you're going to be all right. And I want to give you an opportunity if you're not in right relationship with Jesus, to do that this morning, to be in right relationship with him. And it's as simple as A, B, C, admit, believe, choose. 
you admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short, that you're broken and filled with, just filled with sin and brokenness, just like the very same people we read about this morning. You have to admit that. B, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, that he's God's son, that he lived a sinless life that we should have lived, that he died the death we deserve to die on the cross, that he rose from the dead and is alive today. And then he makes forgiveness available to us because he paid off our debt. We don't have to be sold into debt slavery. He bought us back. And see, you have to choose him to be the Lord. And that was the failure of northern Israel. They decided they wanted their own kings. They wanted to customize God's laws and God's ways of living. They wanted to do things their own way. They want to have the best of both worlds, all the wealth and the choice privileges and the opulence and the opportunity and the advantages of being in God's holy land, but they didn't want to live God's way. Friends, you can't have both and. When you come into God's kingdom, there is but one king. And for us to be in his kingdom and take advantage of all the blessings and the benefits of his kingdom, we have to honor and acknowledge and surrender and submit to his kingship in our lives. If you're ready to make that decision today, let me lead you in a prayer of faith right now that you can pray right where you're at, a prayer that says, Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I am in need of a new king. But I believe in you, Jesus. You're God's son. You are sinless. You died on the cross. You died in my place. I should have been on the cross. I should have been sentenced. But you stepped in for me. And you rose from the dead. And you're alive today. I believe all of that with all of my heart. I receive forgiveness from you today. I invite you to live inside of me. And I choose you as my king. I choose you as my Lord. I tear up the law I've made for myself. And I follow yours. I will serve you all the days of my life. In your name I pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, will you work on our hearts today? May we hear the words of Amos fresh and new some 2,800 years later. They still ring to us as relevant to today. We people... We're your kids that just seem to be marching around the same wall over and over and over again in cycles of things. Will you break us free from some of that today? You've got, you have our attention, so don't let us leave from this moment without making a commitment in our heart. Those of us that have heard the voice of the Lord today, that have heard you just speaking to our heart, whether it's concrete changes or just a call to wholly investigating what this could mean in our hearts. We want to be your people. Show us what it means for us as individuals to be rivers of justice and righteousness. And will you teach us as Echo Community Church what that looks like? That our ears won't turn deaf to the opportunity that we have to truly be a people that you can be proud of, resplendent in your glory. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.